Before we start, there is some discussion around eating disorders and loss in this episode. Hi, and thank you for listening to Wise Women in Sport. This episode is being released on International Women's Day, a day where we celebrate achievements of women and embrace a world which is diverse, inclusive and equal. In this episode, I speak to a woman whose performances in endurance running have shown how the gap between men and women is closer now than it ever has been before. Whatever sport you take part in, or whatever your profession, I think everyone can take something away from this conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and here it is. Welcome to the Wise Women in Sport podcast. I'm Emily, and this is the podcast where I delve into the lives of female athletes and sportswomen and discuss how they train and compete around their physiology as women. Today, I'm speaking with runner Samantha Amend. Described as one of the greatest ultra-distance athletes this country has ever produced, Sam has an incredible list of achievements. Last year alone, she broke three British ultra-running records. In April, she broke her own British 100-mile record, running 100 miles in 14 hours and 10 minutes. That's running eight and a half minute miles for 14 hours, for those that can't do the maths like me. In June, Sam won the epic 145-mile Grand Union Canal race from Birmingham to London, finishing in first overall, breaking the ladies' course record in the process and also finishing in the top 10 of all time. She then put on her GB vest as she was selected to race in the 100k World Championships in August. And if you're a fan of running, just take a look at her Power of 10 page to see her amazing race record. If you don't follow running, just know that Sam is up there with the legends of British endurance athletes. So Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleased to meet you. Um, Let's get started with our first question. So the question I I start with everybody is, do you remember your first period and what was that experience like for you? Oh, God, actually, I'm going to answer this in a very honest way and hopefully it will inspire other women that maybe haven't looked after their health. But um, as a kid, I actually suffered with an eating disorder. Um, So I actually started my period very late. It was when I was 17 And I think a lot of us get teenage angst where you're still trying to find yourself. You don't really know your identity. And I was very sporty at school, um, but it's not the same distance that I cover now. And I think um, for me, being severely bullied by females at the time um, really impacted me, which meant I ended up developing an eating disorder. So I stunted my growth, the most important time of your life when you should be getting periods. So I didn't actually start until I was 17. And then I had a battle for nearly eight years with an eating disorder. Um, And it wasn't until I had my children and got into the relationship that I had with my children's dad. And that was at the age of 19 that I really came through the other side. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's just say periods became a bit of a problem. Um, I didn't really feel I was ready to be a woman when I was younger. Um, So I can't really say I wrote down exactly when I got my first period, but it was Mm -hmm. late. I was a late developer. And... Were you were you taking part in sport as a teenager? Was that something you did? Were you quite active? Yeah, um, so I grew up, um, I've actually got a twin sister as well, um, and she was completely different. She wasn't the sporty type, but when I was at school, I absolutely loved PE, and it was before the days where you could actually do it as a GCSE, but I would say it was definitely where I thrived, even from primary school. I loved anything that meant physical movement, lots of energy to burn, so I would do, I did ballet for 15 years, um, never got up to the Royal Ballet Standard, but I just enjoyed it. Um, I went to a local ballet ballet school it was all my mum could afford and local was easy for her with four children um and I also did a lot of uh, team sports at school hockey Mm -hmm. was one of my favorite um but what I loved was the cross country and the middle distance and um ironically um I'm only five foot three and normally if you look at a lot of um long jumpers they tend to be quite tall um I was actually quite good at long jump now I would freak it out I'd probably end up being injured because you know you're a multi-sporter when you're at school and I love the fact our school was really sporty the only thing I didn't do and we did horrifically have a swimming pool which you tend to find only at private schools and I did everything possible because again talking about the puberty and the change of your body it was like my idea of hell knowing that the boys would look through the cracks of the wooden um, fencing that was around there so I the, the one thing I did avoid was um yeah swimming at 
happy. <laughs> yeah, avoid at all costs, I yeah. say. Yeah, when you're a teenager, there is nothing worse, is there, than mm-hmm. thinking, oh, I've got to go in a swimming pool yeah. and put on a swimming costume or a bikini and other mm-hmm. people are going to look at me. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I um, I think I had a Veruca and all these different problems. It's the one time I used to have the odd few excuses. But um, the idea of if you forgot your swimming costume and then you'd be given one from the bucket oh. of lost property. <laughs> that, that in itself was a reason not to go into school, tell the teacher you'd help them with something else. So yes, I do have some um, not fond memories. But as far as the sporting, I did a lot of um, athletics and I did run for the county even at was I 15 um that was my first double with cross country and I didn't really enjoy cross country back then but um just being able to go out for the day where you'd go and compete against other schools I did pretty well at 80 Mm. 815 but when you're at school that seems a really long way because you're on a 200 meter track unless you get invited outside at school for um into schools competitions Mm. then you got to go to a running track before then I'd never seen a proper running track it was the school field that normally had a load of rabbit holes you'd be lucky if you didn't you know sprain your ankle yeah but yeah good good memories so always been quite competitive then always Mm. yeah Yeah. and so much at the moment online we see is actually talking very openly to the younger generation about the importance of their menstrual cycle and looking looking out for those younger cross-country girls maybe who are really really ambitious and really competitive and making sure that they are thinking about their menstrual cycle and almost using it as a bit of a a health marker was that ever discussed with you when you were a teenager was that ever something that was sort of on your radar um no I think the only thing that we got back in school and it's not school's fault but it's only come along now as we've had better with social media I mean when I look back at school I'm 44 this year we didn't have social media we didn't I think the closest we got to that was in Carter which was a cd-rom drive that you would put into your laptop oh, you know yeah. It was, yeah I remember it, that exactly it was very different and in one sense I would say it was great but in another we didn't have that education so there was no markers or indicators I just remember when I obviously had my eating disorder it was treated like you had something seriously wrong with you like you were mentally there was a problem with you that you had been created differently to everyone else and it was there was a bit of stigma to it it was very early on when Jodie Kidd and some of the big uh, celebrity models were developing eating disorders and people see it as that you're doing it on purpose but actually it's one of the most um sheltered um lonely life styles that you can have because you're you become almost an introvert and you don't really know what's going on with your body and there was very little help so if I look back at the type of education we got at school it would have been right you're going through your puberty now um this is your uh, you'd have sex education but it was done so old school mm-hmm. and archaic you'd look and think gosh it didn't even scratch the surfaces and going on to the like the sport and protecting younger women I do have a voice and why I was really interested in your um, podcast for females because although men do suffer from eating disorders and it does happen um, I think there's a lot with the stigma around periods and the growth and change that a young woman goes through it's really hard to explain unless you've gone through it Mm. so I'm quite protective I could probably spot a mile off when I go to competitions someone that's got um, disordered eating or a problem with food and it's normally a sign of um, someone that's a perfectionist is someone that's got problems in their life that their way of coping is a form of control and often it will either be through um, disordered eating uh, someone might turn to drugs another person might turn to drinking but if you're a highly competitive person you don't actually see restricting your food as a negative thing you see it as it's going to make you perform better so it's a different relationship but I didn't have any real support apart from um when I went into the eating disorders unit and even then you were force fed, which is probably the worst thing you can do to Mm. someone suffering with food and has a fear of of it and trying to find themselves. So what was it that helped you overcome your eating disorder? Uh, Age is one thing when you get older, realising you can't break your body anymore. It was also my nan. My nan was back in the day, smoking was hip and cool. You know, my nan, um, Fortunately, she passed away in 2011, but she was quite important to me and she smoked heavily. And I don't know, I think I'd, because I'd been in and out of the hospital as an inpatient and an outpatient, it got to the point that with her saying, I'll stop smoking, which was, you know, 
quite a big feat for someone that smoked for 60 years. Seeing the trauma it was causing my family, it was a case of having to dig really deep. And I think when you've hit rock bottom so low and you realise it's impacting your life and somehow you've been given this opportunity to survive again, I remember this conversation with my uh, doctor that said, if you don't put any weight on and I'm going to admit to you, I got down to four and a half stone. I was, you know, it's ridiculous. I mean, I know I'm only five foot three, but it was so bad. I was so unwell that I think the force of being potentially sectioned, my nan saying to me, I would love um, for you to, you know, just start eating. And then they stopped pressurizing, trying to give me things like fatty butters. It was basically drip feeding me bits of food I could cope with. Mm. So I found a coping mechanism. It's a little bit like, um, you know, when you do a long race, like an ultra race, you microdose yourself with food to keep the energies up, but don't overeat because you have a different effect where you'll end up having to run to the toilet or it's too much food so it was gradually changing my relationship with food and as I started to see more energy was coming in for me to be able to do my exercise it was a natural process and I think also being um, around more positive people out of the toxic environment of the girls that had bullied me that followed me to college, if you know what I mean. So that was the reason why I had to leave leave college. So it was when I was fifth, no, sorry, sixteen, um, and re repeat the year a year later, which was really hard for me. But mm. it was probably the best thing that happened because it took me away from toxic people. And it was was it the toxic people that really kick started your eating disorder in the first place and, and bullying that yeah. you mentioned. Yeah, ironically, when I was at school, I would say I can remember really happy memories up until about the age of 11 before I started secondary school. And you go from what I call a country bumpkin safe environment of village children where I lived in Marlow to then go into a school that's doubled, maybe tripled the size Mm. and kids coming from different areas. And genuinely, I was bullied for being popular and good at sport. And now look at me. And it's funny because it's always been part of my life but it's how you see it it's for me now it's about meditation and performance and what I can achieve whereas back then it was a case of I was doing it because it was not so much negative but it was my way of coping yeah Um, I see running very differently it's my mental health as well as physical performance and you can only do that if you look after your health exactly and so have you had, you said that your your growth was stunted. Did you have any other kind of medical problems that came from that eating disorder that you knew about? No. Do you know what? I was really lucky because there was always the risk drummed into me. If you don't start eating, you won't be able to have children. You'll end up with polycystic ovaries. You won't be able to do this X, Y, Z. And I think the fear for me was always the long-term damage. I mean, early on in the days of the eating disorder, quite frankly, I couldn't care if I woke up or not. I was always dreaming about not waking up in the morning mm-hmm. and exercise became a bit of a chore because it was a, um, almost like a devil sitting on your shoulder. When you sit and you've had depression, you go through this almost like mantra and um, routine that tells you you've got to get up and do X amount and then it becomes addictive behaviour. And I think when I got out of that cycle... I started to realise that maybe I've been given a second chance and life shouldn't be taken for granted. Um, I just felt my food was better served to the children of Africa and other people that needed it more. And then that whole self-care went out the window. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because you feel you need to have external validation from other people. And I, I guess some emotional neglect that I didn't have growing up was the reason I ended up turning into an eating disorder. Not only was I being bullied at school, I didn't feel safe anywhere and I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere but equally I could still perform at a reasonable level of Mm. sport because it was never at the distances I'm doing now and I would say I was functioning rather than and existing rather than living Mm. um it's complicated yeah and I, I just look now and I think it's completely different when you start working on yourself and you understand it's like I've woken up from a 43 year sleep So let's talk a little bit about uh, your running and how did that start? So obviously running at school um, and then I did some gym stuff after I'd got off out and out of my sort of eating disorder and I went into the work world. 
Um, I started going to the gym. I would say I was very much a gym bunny. I liked the machines. I loved chatting to people in there. It was a social environment around like-minded people. So I did that for a couple of years. And then it was when my daughter was um, born. She was, um, I had her when I was 23, so quite young. Um, I always wanted to do the London Marathon from the age of 18. And I didn't really understand the rejection process, which, mm. again, it spin up a little bit of that fear of rejection that I had growing up as well um and I just thought oh wow I've put my um uh, you know number and name in the hat to do it and I've been told that there isn't a place I didn't realize it was that competitive yeah. so I think in the back back of the mind I sort of put that aside until I went and joined my first software company and working there they were putting a team together for Outward Bound which is a, a charity for disadvantaged children yeah. mainly London based and I thought right this is it this is my time so a couple of running friends from work in different roles we all got together and regularly went and trained um I went from simply running maybe four or five miles a week which was on the treadmill um to then in 10 yeah 10 weeks I ran a marathon (laughs) so I, I went from four miles to I think 20 miles then 40 and then all of a sudden I was um beyond the marathon I think I got to about 135 miles so again that's another addiction that started I've got a very addictive personality there's a theme here um and then I ran yeah my first marathon I planned to run it in three hours 30 I told everyone three hours 45 but in the back of the mind my competitiveness was I had already thought I want to run quicker. And I think the only fear that I had with London Marathon was never the distance because I did one or two long runs. I had the confidence just to find a way to get through. I was pretty resilient. Do you know what it was? It was getting lost in the marathon. What I didn't realise is obviously the route is properly mapped out. This is my... um, not understanding running I was you know not wearing the right clothes I just turned up like I was going out to run a um you know a 10 minute run or something it was that in a way that's probably a good thing because the pressure wasn't there and I was I was having nightmares leading up to it thinking that what happens if I get lost in the Docklands (laughs) and I didn't realize there's going to be loads of people in front of you what are you even thinking about so once I got out that I actually ran 360 amazing that is amazing Yeah, for your first marathon, that's insane. And that was in 2006, wasn't it? Yes, so my daughter, um, she was two and a half, and uh, I just thought the training was going to be hard, so I was getting up at sort of four in the morning trying to fit it in before a day's work because at the time I was managing quite a lot of European and um, global customers. So I fit it around a full-time job, a young child, um, and just balancing household stuff. So I've always had quite a lot of different hats I've had to wear. And two things happen when you run a marathon, you'll hear people say after, if you ever interview them, never again. Yeah. And then I sat in the bath after, and I think it was five hours later after looking at my chafe burns, all the things that I tried on for the first time that they always tell you not to do, but you still go off and do it yourself and wear all the wrong clothes. Yeah. Um, I had such a high. Um, I just thought, oh, sod it, I'm going to go and book another race. So I spoke to um, my friends and off we went to, we booked in New York Marathon. Amazing. <laughs> All spaced out that time, April to, when is it? New, uh, New York's normally November. November, it's the yeah. End of the year. But um, now I look at my races and I back them all up. But <clears throat> the thing is, for me, it was the start of my running competitiveness as an adult and um, basically just getting better with my eating, looking after myself a bit more, and it became my saviour. Yeah, definitely. And you said about the juggle of a full-time job, young child, <clears throat> running. How, you know, practically, how would you do that? You say you got, used to get up really, really early. Would you be running, like, in your lunch breaks and things like that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it did, like I said, it got a bit addictive. And I think when you're in your 20s, you can get away with it. I was training three times a day and I was holding a full time job. I wasn't sleeping much. That's something I'm still working on. But um, I think I've got quite a lot of energy anyway, even now. I think I could probably compete against 20 year olds. It's not obviously a competition. I don't want everything to be. But my point is everyone's got different energy systems and I feed off exercise. So for me, I was training first thing in the morning then if I was in the office um I'd be training at lunchtime as well and then I'd probably get a run out after I'd done my um children's food and stuff and sorted things out in the house I just never complained I found a way and it's you know it's the kind of thing that I say to people when they go I don't have time to go to the gym or I don't have time to exercise you do you just have to find the right time and Mm. I don't moan about it I just get on with it it's important for me 
Yeah, yeah, such a driver for you. Mm. So where did ultra running come in? So you said you done you did London, you entered New York, um, then did you enter London again? Did I read that? Yeah, so I've done London nine times. I've run over 40 marathons. And I'll be honest with you, in 2011, um, someone told me about a race. It was a multi-stage race, which was on the Ridgeway. And I remember having a bit of a fear of the Ridgeway, which runs from Ivanhoe Beacon, um, basically right over to Avebury Stones. And the fear I had when I was part of the running club, which was the group of friends I met in High Wycombe because I was living in Marlow at the time. I remember doing one of the legs, which was a team event and having this fear. Again, there's these fears of getting lost or stuff. This was all off road, running through a field with a ball and a load of cows. And I had a red top on at the time. So, you know, <laughs> you hear oh, balls like yeah. as they come charging for you. I remember being drained of water, drink because it was a really, really hot day so my fear of the ridgeway I wanted to get over um because that was only a 10 mile leg and even back then that was a long way for me on a summer's day I think it's like the 30th of June or something it's always really hot um so my friend said why don't you join and I I think this race he probably felt and he's still a very long-term friend now and actually comes to support me in a lot of my ultras I remember looking up to him because he used to do these crazy long runs and he said oh just enjoy it I don't think he expected me to do as well as I did so believe it or not running 86 miles over the space of three days is actually harder than doing it all in one go because Mm. you have to get up when your legs are broken and stiff you've got to get up um and basically get up again and run when they've stiffened they've laid and relaxed it's almost easier to give them the slapping and carry on (laughs) so that was my first race and I won the first day um I was too nice to another friend and told him when he was going wrong so I would have won that day um but I came in second and then the um second day I was in the top three so that's with men and women yeah and then day day three was um I think it was second but overall I came third um, in the event and way ahead of most of the women and I mm. think back then I realized and even he turned around and he said you're definitely you've got ultra running genes in you and I said I've definitely got I've always thought I can run longer than a marathon and I think as it progressed and I started to get bored of the marathon chasing the sub 240 goal um, I lost love of it and it's also when you look at pace as you get older it's really hard to sustain mm. so when I really dabbled with the ultras was 2016 when um, I put myself forward I heard about GB opportunities and I ended up being selected for um, off my marathon times Doha 50k for GB and that's when I started running at the age of 36 in 2016. Wow I know we haven't mentioned um, the unfortunate loss of your late husband and Mm -hmm. how where did that sit within your running you know did you have to take a lot of time off did that kind of throw you back into your running was that something you know sort of an escape for you um I mean it was very early on in my marathon running because obviously we talked about 2006 um I actually ran one of my best marathons three weeks after my husband died and most people would have said oh my god why would you run a marathon you've got so much trauma going on in your life at the moment because it was unexpected his death as well um it was really difficult and I didn't know which way to turn and there's two ways to look at it you can either bury your head in the sand or get on with your life and I actually took one week's compassionate leave from work I'd been there for seven years they would have given me any support I needed and they would have also said come back when you're ready but here's the thing Emily when you're not having a routine which is something that I would say as a person that's got addictive personality um my self-worth was quite low then I need a routine because it's Mm. how I need to function so going back to work as long as people weren't whispering if people would approach me and they were just supportive and went out running with me that's all I needed and actually although I had counseling it was the running that was the therapy running with my close friends that are now my crew for my Mm. long distance events none of them ever judged me they were just there to support me and I think naturally when someone dies, people don't know how to react. So what happens is they run a mile from you and it's probably the most hurtful thing you can do to someone. But I, you start to realise who your real friends are because they're there with you all through the bad and the good times. And I didn't want to deal with it then, I'll be honest with you. I put it in Pandora's box. I became Forrest Gump 
I was running all the time. And that's where I said to you that kind of unhealthy relationship of running 130 plus miles like a full time athlete like Paula Radcliffe or Mo Farah. It was what I needed at the time. I knew it was quite destructive because it was probably, in fact, it was, it was overtraining. Again, that's another topic. Um, But I did it to escape and I got really good off the back of it. And it's the person I am today because it actually helped put a foundation for training in place. And for me, it was my therapy. I didn't want to sit in a room talking to someone or sitting in group therapy talking about how someone's died. It was incredibly negative, very raw and made me feel physically sick so Mm. I took my daughter to the child bereavement um we went through that with her because she was only seven Um, my son was 13 months old so he was very young um I did as much counseling with them as possible but then it became a point where it was too much for them so it's Mm. not that I kind of pushed it to the side but I didn't want to keep talking about negativity um and that's kind of how we've moved on I mean my son is 15 uh now and my daughter is uh 21 in May so they're a little bit older but you know when they get to that age they bring different problems and Mm. I'm now looking and thinking there's definitely things I could have done with more support and although the child bereavement was great I don't feel like I had the support needed to be able to talk to my kids more about it so I feel that there's been a little bit of emotional stuff I've missed out and I suspect my daughter who has got some mental health issues now some of it could be the consequence of the loss of her dad and also how things may have been handled in school. But, you know, hindsight's a great thing. And it was really difficult. I got them into sport. That was the main thing and made sure I've been available to them. But you can always do better as a parent, right? Well, I mean, I can only imagine it must have been incredibly tough, you know, being a single, then a single parent. You weren't expecting that um, to then do all of that. And I think it's very admirable to have, you know carried on carried on what you what you love and and to show them that you know you can still get out there and do incredible things and it's not something Mm. that's going to hold you back um so you are now as I said at the introduction in the introduction quite uh, a successful ultra runner you're a team GB athlete you hold multiple course records national records Mm. um coming back to the subject of our physiology as women how do you manage your physiology, your menstrual cycle, your hormones, do you ever kind of make considerations around your training and your racing with that in mind? Um, I mean, here's the thing with women, if we always talked about our period, we'd never actually race. I'm well aware when my body goes in tired state, it could either be um, the repercussions of I had glandular fever in 2017. And that was basically fatigue and overtraining. We all go through blocks of it. But I've learned how to listen to my body. So if I feel certainly on the menstrual cycle, it tends to be a certain week of the month. And because I actually use the marina coil, this is choice. Um, A few people have said to me, Uh, maybe use something different I said well no with a busy lifestyle that I have it works for me Um, and what I find is because your periods are a lot lighter you still deal with all the symptoms you get every month where you get cranky you feel extremely exhausted and it's only when that passes I go oh I thought that was because I was stressed at work or something else so what I'm saying here is I don't let it bother me but I have physical symptoms um, like my quads get really tight. I get some sort of blockage in my left ankle, which is really weird. Mm. It feels like my ankle is really tight. Um, the extreme tiredness, but I push through it because I realize if I put it in the way and said, Oh, it's menstrual month or menstrual week. Yeah. Um, I would, yeah, I would basically never do anything, but all I'll do is if I find that I'm tired, I'll talk to my coach and he's amazing. He understands it. Although he's a male, he does understand women's cycles. I'll say to him, I haven't been able to meet the uh, target times that you've put in there. And he's really good because what he's realized is sometimes when someone puts, you need to run X minute mile, that puts pressure. So instead he'll mix it up where he'll say, run for two minutes times 12 or run for such and such. So that takes the pressure away of trying to reach numbers. And then if I do these sessions, because he'll plan out the week for me, he'll send it on a Sunday. I'll have a look and go, oh God, I can't, I can't, don't want to do this session. But I can get myself out and he spaces it out enough that it doesn't feel like every day is an effort day. Because again, this is what I've learned with my training. Certainly as you get older as well, that's the other factor with your periods as well sometimes you just can't meet them and you just have to accept it's not going to happen today and I'll either have a conversation they'll say right try it tomorrow or two days time or don't worry about it move on because we as athletes 
what we do is we fixate on the negative. So if say you do a, um, a training session, it's five times or 10 times 1K, that one 1K that you've done well under pace that should um, be what it should be, um, you focus on that one rather than the other reps that you've done, the other nine that have been really good. So this is what I've learned over the last couple of years. And this is the exciting thing about ultras. I would say they're probably designed even better for someone that has menstrual cycles because you can get through that fatigue with one, getting vitamins, which I have, um, two, you're eating more regularly, so you're stabilizing your blood sugar levels, so you can do everything else. Then I take iron as well. Um, mm-hmm. Iron's really important. I also make sure that I'm on iron-based food because I'm a vegan. So I actually went and started cooking through Mindful Chef, which costs quite a lot of money, but my view is if you're investing in an engine like you would with a car, then you look after it. And I see my, this is where my eating patterns of change where I see I need to fuel my body it's like an engine and if you want the best performance out of it you look after your health and that all goes down to the um periods as well and how you deal with them but I don't let them hinder my performances sometimes I've um turned up to races I remember there was one of my best marathons that I ran I actually came on my period on the day of the race I wanted to really yeah thank god I've got black shorts (laughs) (laughs) I mean I was going to say that is always a worry and I was going to ask are there any other instances that you can remember where whether it was your periods arrived on that day or you just feeling um you know the effects of your hormones or anything like that are there have there been any of the longer ones where you feel like Mm. you've been affected yeah, no, I have. I've um, I've turned up to races and that's exactly what I've had fatigue. Funnily enough, it was actually at the Grand Union. Um, I really wasn't feeling it because I knew I was due on. And actually, it's the week before you'll know this as a female yourself. And I felt quite unwell, I actually felt exhausted, almost fatigued. And I mean, I did actually go down to the boxing gym with my friend the night before just to try and psych myself off, which is incredible to think. <laughs> then I ran, it's actually 147 miles with all our diversions, so an extra two miles of bonus. Yeah. Um, but I just thought, do you know what, Sam? Go with the flow. Anything can happen. It's a long way. And this is the beauty of long distance races that you can't go off at breakneck speed. I think you'd probably feel the impact of a period or that time worse with the shorter distance races than what you actually get with long races. Because we've learned, and I'm 44 this year, we've learned to deal with periods. So it's not like it's something new that's coming. So you can learn how to handle something that's always there once a month and give or take, it might move on slightly different days. So I just remember thinking, I feel fatigued, so I'll make sure I take a bit of caffeine. And then I would give myself some little Coke treats, um, some Coca-Cola. I go for the full fat. Then I would give myself some candy kittens, you know. (laughs) Yes, they're a little bit sugar crash moment, but you can get away with it in the long races because the pace is so much slower. In a way, it's harder because you've got to keep plodding along and you feel like you're moving somewhere very slowly. But I know I get, there's always in me a second wind and I normally get that when dawn comes up or when I get to the latter stages of a race, I can dig in deep. And um, I try not to even think about my period. It's the last thing on my mind. I'll think about positive stuff, play music as a deflection, yeah. smile at something, focus on what's outside, especially if it's a trail race. Um, if it's something that's monotonous, like the track race, um, if I was ever doing those, I start looking in the boxes where people have thrown all their food just to see, be nosy what they've been eating. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? Because actually, there are so many parallels, I think, between the experience of having your period, particularly if mm. someone has a really tough, it has really, you know, tough periods, or they're really heavy or get lots of cramps or whatever, mm. and running an ultramarathon. I think speaking to so many runners on this podcast, you can just see, like you say, the, the you're not letting it get to you, you're not, you're not mm. going to let it overcome you. But you just have to find little ways to manage it. So whether that is having a sip of Coke or having some sweets Mm. or thinking of something else. And I think um, it's so it's so interesting, the parallels between, you know, having your period and trying to get through it if it is tough um, and just doing little bits here and there to just make make yourself feel better, because there's not a lot you can do. And like you've said, you just have to kind of 
crack on um, mm. and just find the ways that you can manage. Um, and I know I find that very easy to say because my periods are, 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 um, are really light and easy to manage and I've never had anything anything too difficult. But I just think it's it's really interesting how you know you can use all those same skills in ultra running Mm. I mean the other thing is also when you're on your period I don't know if other women have experienced it but it does some terrible things to my gut but then Mm -hmm. it just reminds me of when you do ultra races and you eat (laughs) the wrong things it ends up catabolic and I just think well how do you deal with the run so I'll take a modium or I'll um, just clear myself out that's literally what you've got to do without um, you know sort of talking vulgar it's a really difficult because I often think it's because it's food that I've eaten and then I go oh it's my period again um that's why you end up having like this um belly that it's not cramps for me but it's like it makes this gurgling noise and it feels like a washing machine it's horrible um but I get those sometimes at races and I can't say oh I'm not going to go and book myself into this race because that particular time of the month is when my period comes because often Mm your periods can move if you're stressed which I do get highly stressed with my job trying to balance everything and spin plates um it can move so I just don't think about it what I think about is is the race at the right time that because I'm trying to compete to get into a a GB team is it something that I want to do well I'll find a way I just don't put those barriers in the way anymore because I would never be able to function and I'm not into taking medication so I don't like I said about the emodium, that is like last minute resort and sometimes it doesn't even work but I don't take painkillers um I just take as much natural foods and things that I can take and then the vitamins are very high graded from health span they're all batch tested as well I'm I like everything to be clean and I very rarely take um medicine if I've got migraines or um you know flu or anything like that because I just feel that you've got to ride the course and I think it also makes you tougher when you go to these long distance races um you don't keep yourself as a prisoner (laughs) exactly and that word tough as well I'd written down in my notes Mm -hmm. that you come across as a very very tough tenacious person um and just thinking about those times in your racing career where actually you've run a race outright uh, you've Mm -hmm. won a race outright um how does that make you feel you know being being the strongest overall, being the toughest overall when you're finishing a race and you're ahead of the men and the women? Um, I mean, I've done it. I've won marathons outright, a couple, and I've also done it, obviously, the great example is the Grand Union, um, the Track 100. There was only four of us that finished, so there was a lot more people that started on the track. And it's not that I look at men vs women. Obviously, naturally, we're competing against the females. But I still feel, and it's not all race organisers. I mean, Centurion are amazing that they treat everyone and it's all equal opportunities. And often, they'll actually introduce the women first, which I like. And I'm not playing this feminist card here. But in the work world that I work in, it's very it can be very misogynic in IT and it's very male-driven. And anyone, anything in my life has always been very male centric. So when you get into the racing, certainly with ultras, there's still a lot of work to do to get women up there. And I think it's starting to change and it takes time. But the nicest thing is when men use this quote, and I think it's quite funny, you've been chicked. They never want a woman to beat them unless they're really humble. They've done self work. They understand that it's an amazing achievement for a woman to run um, and win. Um, most men find it quite hard to deal with because wow a woman can run faster than me but what I will say with women is because they've had children a lot of them that I'm competing against or they've had to fought something some sort of trauma in their life it makes them more resilient and strong and Mm. more adaptable we don't go off breakneck speed because there's a lot of ego with men and not all runners are like that but a lot of them feel incredibly competitive against each other and I look back at the Grand Union and loads of people men rocketed off and I'm thinking hang on a minute this is a 145 mile race that speed is like a 5k and when you got when I got to the 100k mark and I started clawing them all back in and I was running with my friend Ian at the time and he was technically my competitor as well I didn't at any point think I've got to beat him because I would have been equally happy for him to win. But when I knew I'd got into the front, I have to admit to you, all of a sudden I thought, I'm doing this for the women, the Mm. women out there to prove a point. And I started to become like this empowered, charged (laughs) 
tribal woman that wanted to win something. So I, I did feel great. And I'll be honest with you, the point it actually proves is women out there. And I said this in my um, when I went to the National Running Show. Women are capable of doing this. We often put our own needs aside because when children come along, in particular, you put yourself at the bottom of the pile and you almost mm-hmm. stop the self-care. And any supportive man out there, and there's a lot of them, and great husbands, great fathers, would encourage a woman to do it. And I think often we put our own needs aside. And I remember all the stuff I used to juggle. I would even step off the treadmill and straddle it and use my foot to rock the little um, baby cradle that my daughter was in just to get my running. And that was how determined. I didn't know I was going to become the runner I am today, but the sacrifices and compromises and then having to do it on my own. Granted, I've had a few relationships since my husband, but it's very different because the kids were always my responsibility I had the school stuff to deal with their needs to deal with and I would sometimes be rocking up in bed at half past 12 at night um, sometimes later and then my day would start again at six o'clock so I don't have time for negativity and this is kind of what I noticed and it's amazing how you know when you win races it becomes yeah even more empowering I feel really proud to be a woman Mm, amazing um Let's talk a little bit about Team Hour 7. Um, mm-hmm. I follow Team Hour 7. I'm not um, completely sure what it is. Can you just explain to us what it is, how it works, why you're a part of it? Yeah, so basically the founders, and it's really sweet. Mike um, is one of my um, very good friends now. So Mike Stocks is also a GB runner, phenomenal runner. He's in his 50s and he wrote a book, um, One Track Mind, which was about his journey on the track. I mean, we're all nuts because we like running around loops. I mean, these are really short loops, 400 metres to be precise, round and round, turn us every four hours. Um, He was coached by my coach that passed away last year, Norman. Norman was a um, phenomenal runner back in his day. He was a GB marathon runner. And because we were both coached together, um, we kept a friendship. And he approached me um, a couple of years ago. He said to me, do you fancy being part of this? And the concept was a lot of ultra running, as you know, there's no funding over here. So when you tell for GB and you've got no sponsorship my sponsorship is effectively my job my job pays for my expensive shoe trust I call it a trust (laughs) worth of shoes in my uh wardrobe well actually outside because they smell um (laughs) not right outside the door because the vapor flies would get stolen I think um but he decided to set this up with um his co-founder Dominic and what it basically is and it's still in the very early phase um you can see it on LinkedIn we're trying to get financial funding to fund athletes that are in the ultra world in GB, so the UK. We're trying to get them funded to give them the same experience a full-time athlete would get if they were running for GB, i.e. the track and field. So if you look at British athletics. So they're looking at getting um, things like the training camps, which I went on last year in July, which helped me ready for the world champs. Um, that we have Zoom meetings. In fact, we've got one tonight. Uh, we share nutrition tips. So we're trying to get um, sponsors, brands, people to get involved so we can start building the ultra community. In essence, um, we'd like to bring more talent through because if you look at the competition, whilst we win some of the world champs against even Americans, they come in numbers, force and background. So the pedigree starts for them in um, track and field at school. In reality, if your life takes the same direction mine has, where I needed a job to fund it, I'm a single parent, I would never have been in a position to have been a full-time athlete. Maybe I would have when I did my first marathon, if I'd have got funded and I'd have had a supportive partner at the time to get me to an Olympic level. But I guess the desire wasn't there then. And now when you look at ultras, as I said, there's a lot of races out there, but there's no funding. The plan is to try and get up to 10 athletes. I know we're looking for another two or three people. So we put an application process out um, and it's to find like-minded people, either with a trail background, 100K, 50K, whatever they may do. And it's looking at athletes to develop and it's Mm. for all ages really, but someone that's got potential talent that could do with a bit more publicity and support basically. Amazing. And you said you went on a training camp last year. I know um, 
many, I mean, I'm, I'm a member of my local running club, but um, I know quite a lot of runners and ultra runners who I've met at different races who are very individual and they just do their own thing by themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you're not running with Team Hour 7 all the time, but I know you are a member of Belgrave, mm-hmm. Belgrave Harriers. Yep. Um, just tell me a little bit, a bit about that, being part of a club and, and that for you in your racing career and having the support of those people around you. Yeah, so my lifelong time friends were actually from Handy Cross, so I was only with them for a couple of years. And when I got better, um, I was approached by a local um, shop owner that was also a decent runner that said, why don't you join Belgrave? He did actually coach me for a few years, and it wasn't long after my husband had died, so sort of, you know, from 2009 to 2011 or so. I joined Belgrave mainly because it gave me access to better racing, more competitive, um, because the club that I ran for at the time, it was great and it was brilliant locally. It got me through my first marathon or two, but I needed something that was more substantial and Belgrave was scary. I was like, oh my God, I'm with the big boys now. And we didn't really have much of a female team. And I've been with them for nearly 14 years now. I'm One thing you'll learn about me is I'm very loyal to my friends, very loyal to people that are looked after me in the club, has grown and grown. They're now bringing younger people in. And I um, got signed up as the president. I was given an honorary position. So I'm actually president of the club now because it's about being a good ambassador. So I see myself a little bit like the mother hen of the group, the (laughs) oldest, but still making the team. I do like to still do those team events because it keeps you sharp. It Mm. makes you feel like you're part of something. And again, because I work from home and my job in program management now, it's not a customer relationship well where I used to travel and I got that interaction. I'm actually home-based and I'm trying to get back now as my children have got older and um, the responsibilities are getting a bit easier, trying to get into the office once a week because I realised, certainly after COVID, that disconnect with people, it's so important. So whilst running is quite individual it's also very team orientated and what you'll find is the longer the distance goes the closer friends that you make because you're all going through those hitting the wall moments you probably cement the best relationships with people like-minded and what you find with running is you all experience kind of similar things um, during your process and I've made some of my closest friends through running I'd say 90% of the time I run on my own. It's not because I want to, but it's lifestyle. It's working from home. uh, A lot of girls or women have got kids. Um, I tend to run a lot with men um, just because they can escape out or if they're not taking their kids to hockey or football, we plan it. So a lot of it has to be planned at the moment. Maybe in another five years, we'll just be able to rock up and go out whenever we like. But at the moment, I would say it's difficult. So rather than wait on someone or feel like plans get changed, again, going back to my point if I like routine I'm very fortunate that I get a work home life balance now doing this new job and my VP basically said go out and run so I thought okay I will (laughs) and they love it because they can promote the fact that I look after myself and with a healthy mind I am so much better at work so this is why I tend to run with people at the weekend or in races or they'll crew me say you've got legs that you can have someone run with you Mm. I will run with my friends because I couldn't think of anything better than being around people I feel comfortable with so yeah amazing um so we're coming to our last few questions one thing I've also written down in my notes when I was listening to you on other podcasts and reading your um your website and stuff was that and also I actually saw you um I sound like a stalker I saw you (laughs) last last year in 2022 I ran the country to capital um and saw you at the start and obviously you flew off at the start um (laughs) way ahead of me but um I remember thinking wow you just look so focused and whenever I see any pictures of you um at any races at the track 100 or you know any of the big ultras you just look like you've got this laser focus and I feel like speaking to you in your life you know you have always had that focus um of running and always you know giving it your all um you're not just entering the odd ultra marathon and just you know seeing if you can get around and tick it tick the box you are doing it and really doing it the best that you can um what would your top tips be for someone like me um on how to to keep that focus you know in life in general and in your training and your racing it's a really difficult one because it is individual but I think if you set yourself to do something rather than go in and half 
baked. It's a case of making sure that you get rid of anything negative, noise or things that are going to impact you for not wanting to finish. So when you see me in races, I might look laser focused, but I can tell you I'm incredibly human mm-hmm. that I have those moments thinking, why on earth am I in this race? I'll be gritting my teeth. I'll sometimes put my sunglasses on so I don't have to look at someone. I'll put music in so I can block things out. So it's about breaking it down. So I always say to people, when you're doing an ultra race, whatever the distance if you've got to a point like certainly for me I know the 147 miles is the furthest that I've run if I go and turn up to a race that's 100 miles or 100k um, I have to work out one what food I'm going to need to eat because the energy is going to be expended is much quicker so that's kind of more like a 730 pace for me when I ran the Anglo-Celtic plate in April Um, I know I'm not going to have time to take on foods that I can't digest Um, I'll make sure I put in when I'm going to eat food. So food breaks basically become something to focus on. Mm. Um, And it's a way of distracting yourself, but keeping yourself in race mode. Because if I'm doing slower races, I'll tell you what, I tend to think about a lot of personal stuff and I end up being able to problem solve. And I almost wish I had a dictaphone that I could actually write down my ideas Mm. and thoughts because they sound really good at the time. And then by the time (laughs) I finish my race, I can't remember anything. (laughs) This episode is going out on International Women's Day. What Mm. advice would you give to other women who want to pursue big things in sport, particularly those who, like you, have got a career, full-time job and a family as well? I would actually say it all goes hand in hand. I mean, sometimes I find when my running's not going well, like I've come through an injury recently, um, a hamstring issue that's been dogging me since the World Champs or just after. And it's normally a good time to reset and replan and refocus. And I think what sport certainly has done through for me through my whole lifetime is it actually helps with work. It keeps me focused. It gives me the energy I need to get through my work day. And I would say to any women out there, um, If you're putting blocks in the way and saying you're not going to have time for it, ask yourself why you're putting them in there. Is sport important for you? Does it make you feel good? And if a lot of the questions you ask yourself are, yes, they do, this is what I want to do, then anything's possible. I actually don't see all these boundaries of being a full-time worker, a mum, as boundaries to say I'm never going to be able to achieve anything. If anything, it makes the success even sweeter because we can always put barriers in the way and say I don't want to run or I can't run. But actually, I'm someone that's very challenged. I like to feel competitive. I've got my own motivation and drive. And what I find when I see other women doing this, it's almost like you feel this warmth and positivity and protection to other women to think wow this is amazing I love seeing women achieve and I I, my my message out there on International Women's Day is you can be it all you can do it all if you want it enough you you are in control of your destiny and your opportunities find ways to make it work and if it means you um, sacrificing something else or it means that you've got to get a babysitter for your children don't feel bad about it because actually the more um, you work with yourself and you're comfortable with who you are the better the people are around you and I have found since I've stopped worrying about getting external validation and having someone else's approval or feeling like I'm not a good mum because I'm going out running why aren't you a good mum because you're running it actually makes you better for someone when you're looking after yourself so Mm. yeah say go and do it amazing um i think that's a great place to finish thank you for the opportunity i hope um women out there and men as well um find this inspiring to know that you can go out and do stuff despite your challenges through life and uh yeah i appreciate this opportunity to share my experience and hopefully if anyone wants to follow me they'll see some more successful stories but um I don't want to talk too much about what I've got planned (laughs) there's already stuff I don't like the pressure but um I'm certainly looking to break some more records in the future brilliant you can find out more about Sam on her website runsamrun.co.uk or follow her on Instagram at amend samantha but i will put links to both of those in the show notes in the show notes um so all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for talking to me sam thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode if you enjoyed it please rate us or leave a review or you can even go on our instagram or our facebook group wise women in sport and let us know what you think Make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the next episode when it comes out and we'll see you soon.